At the age of 11, Stevie Wonder began his professional career as a singer-musician. For the last 57 years, he has been in the limelight. You perhaps know, if you know anything about Stevie Wonder, that he's blind. Perhaps you have wondered when he became blind. He was not born blind. He was born prematurely, and he suffered what is known as retinopathy of prematurity. The result was that early in his life, within the first few days of his life, the retinas were detached and they were irreparable. It's amazing how gifted this man is. He has won 25 Grammy Awards. The Grammy, of course, is the epitome of success in the music industry. He's had 30 top 10 hits over the course of his career, and he's still going strong. Many of you probably know another name in the music industry, Jose Feliciano. I cannot think of him without thinking of Feliz Navidad. And I love that song. I sing it. I think I know what it says. I'm pretty sure I do. And it's really wonderful. And the Doors song, Light My Fire, I thought it was his song until I began to do a little research for this morning and discovered that actually he borrowed their song, but he did it a lot better than the Doors ever did, didn't he? Now, he's blind too. It's interesting, these two highly accomplished singer-musicians have accomplished what they've accomplished as blind men. Unlike Stevie Wonder, when Feliciano was born, he was born blind. He has what is called congenital glaucoma. He's never seen any light in his entire life. And for all practical matters, neither has Stevie Wonder. He can't remember anything about that. This morning, we're going to read about a man who was born blind whom Jesus encountered. The story is found in John chapter 9. And by the way, the man in question is the only person that we have record of in the New Testament who was suffering from a congenital illness that Jesus healed. Jesus healed all kinds of illnesses, but this man is the only one who was healed of a congenital disease, a disease that he came in this world with. We don't know the nature of it, but we know it left him blind. And as an aside, if you study the miracles of Jesus and his healing ministry, what you will discover is that of all the people whom we know about, whom he healed, the most who were healed were people who were suffering from blindness. That's amazing, isn't it, to think about. But keep this in mind as we read the text, John 9, 1 through 7, then we're going to look at it in some detail in the remaining moments we have together. John 9, 1, the New American Standard Bible says, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is today. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When He had said this, He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to His eyes and said to Him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeking. There are two clear emphases in these seven verses which have relevance to our lives. The first has to do with the condition of mankind. We're going to look at that in detail. And then after, we're going to look at the mission of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the condition of mankind. The condition of all humanity is that of being blind. And not unlike the man in question who was blind physically from birth, you and I came into this world blind from birth. Spiritually speaking, we have a congenital blindness that was a result of the entrance of sin into the world through our ancestor, Adam. If you can, keep your place, turn to the book of Ephesians, and listen to these verses from the 
fourth chapter of Ephesians, 17 through 19, which describe people who are without Christ and the condition of the blindness that really ruins their lives, spiritually speaking. Ephesians 4, 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So, all people are born spiritually blind because they're born, if we were to read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, spiritually dead. And consequently, this picture painted by the Holy Spirit through the writer John, the eyewitness of what happens here in this section, this is designed to help us to get a snapshot of ourselves outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 of the passage. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Now this raises an important question. Why did they ask this question of Jesus? Well, go back to chapter 5 of John. Perhaps you remember that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the celebration of one of the mandatory feasts for every Jew who was male and 20 years of age or older. And he came into the city, and instead of going to the temple area where the greater festivities were occurring, he made a beeline to a place known as the Pool of Bethesda. And when he got there, he found a man who had been there for 38 years. In fact, the Bible says Jesus saw this man. Jesus always sees, by the way, people who are hurting and in need. He saw this man and he knew that this man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Can you imagine? 38 long years. This man had been carried every day of his life from the time he was able to be carried and set beside the pool of Bethesda because it was thought that occasionally the angel of the Lord would come and stir the waters, and the first invalid who could make his or her way into the pool would be healed. So with the hope and expectation, for 38 years this man was taken every day except Sabbath days and other high holy days in the history of Israel. And he looked at the man. He made this question for him. He said, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And the man agreed, I do want to get well. Jesus said, take up your pallet and walk. He did. He didn't have strength in his legs. His legs were atrophied. Maybe they were withered from days past. He couldn't get up, but he stood up by faith and he did what the Lord told him to do. Now look what Jesus says to him after this man has gone to the temple. And Jesus finds him at the temple. Look what he says to him in verse 14 of John 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Stop sinning so that nothing worse may befall you. There was some relationship in this man's body between some sin or lifestyle of sin he was involved in and his illness. Does that mean that all illness is the result of sin? This is a fundamental question which is often bantied about within spiritual circles, Christian spiritual circles. The answer to that question is yes, with qualification. When Adam sinned, the Bible says in Romans 5 verse 12, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So in the broader general sense, there would be no suffering of illness in the world had Adam not sinned. And in that sense, yes, that illness is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. If 
sin had not come into the world, people would have not have died. They would have not gotten sick, which is a precursor of dying. It's obvious that one out of one of us dies. Nobody escapes this life. We all die. A quick survey of history would reveal the awfulness and the power of sickness. The Black Death in the 14th century in Europe, one-third to one-half of all Europeans died by what was probably the bubonic plague. In the Civil War, the American Civil War, I was surprised to discover that twice as many soldiers died of illness during that war as died in battle. And then in 1918 and 1919, the last days of World War I, which took so many lives, there were 30 to 50 million people who died worldwide due to an outbreak of influenza. Many, many more than died in World War I. If sin, as I've said, had not entered the world, there would be no suffering. Going back to why Jesus' disciples asked him, what has this man or his parents done? He included parents. There was no mention of the parents of the 38-year paralyzed man, but in this case there was reference to the parents. Now here's why. It was the prevailing philosophy of the day among the rabbis that a child could sin in utero. And the illustration that the rabbis latched upon was one which is found in Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 and following, where the writer of Genesis talks about the wrestling match which occurred between the twins in the womb of their mother, Rachel. And we know their names, Jacob and Esau. And so the rabbis said that Esau was trying to kill Jacob in the womb. Well, there's no evidence of that. That's just their speculation about that. But that was in the background also that informed these disciples of Christ to ask such a question. There's also evidence that a woman who was Jewish found herself in a pagan temple worshiping, and she was pregnant, expecting her child, and by association, the child in the womb was made an idolater because of the mothers worshiping a pagan god. She was an idolater. The child was also an idolater. And then, believe it or not, Greek thought had begun to creep into the thinking of what are known as Hellenistic Jews. Those were Greek-speaking Jews. There was a great dispersion of the Jewish people all over the Mediterranean world. And they began to be influenced in their thinking by Greek philosophy. And perhaps you know that Greek philosophy speaks of the immortality of the soul. That does not simply mean that once a person is conceived and becomes a living soul, that that person is immortal forever. It means the soul pre-existed the conception of that person. It's reflective of Eastern religion and mysticism, Hinduism and Buddhism. Believes, of course, they both believe in the pre-existence and immortality of the soul. And these people believe that people who were sick in this life, which would be all of us really. Is there anybody here who's never been sick? I'm looking around. <laughs> We've all been sick, right? We all have some defect in our lives. We don't like to think about it. Some of us are blessed with better health than others. But what we do know is that these people, Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews, people who were the thinkers within that sect of Jewish life said people were getting punished. Sounds just like Hinduism. You know what karma is, don't you? Maybe you don't know what it is, but you just hear people saying bad karma. Well, the idea of karma is, within Hinduistic thought, is that people in this life who suffer are suffering 
because of something they did or did not do in their previous existence. So there's this cycle of transmigration from one state to another to another. And that's why within Hinduism, for instance, it is considered wrong to help someone who is sick or in trouble because what you're doing, you're stalling their movement back through many reincarnations back to Godhead. Well, even the Jews of Jesus' day thought about this in some regards. We read from the book of Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, a bit earlier. And we notice that those who do commit idolatry, they are going to be people who are going to be punished, as will their children to the third and fourth generations. So this also influenced the thinking of these disciples. They were steeped in Jewish thought. They knew the Ten Commandments, as we call them, the Ten Words, as they would have been known by them. They understood the penalty which followed. And there was this thought that people are going to be punished for the sins of their fathers. Well, going back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, which is also in the law of God, in Moses' law, this is what the Scriptures say. Fathers shall not be punished for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So is there a contradiction there? No, there is no contradiction. The idea of sin being conveyed to the third and fourth generation, think about it. If you study the history of Israel and Judah, what you will see clearly is that because generations which preceded other generations sinned and went against God, trouble came into the nation and the society of Israel and Judah. And the effects of that trouble had profound negativity upon the succeeding generations. Now, here's another application of that concept. For instance, all of us had fathers, physically human fathers, who were sinful. As great a father as I had, I love my father. I think about him virtually every day. I thank the Lord for my father for being a man who came to know Christ and sought to lead our family in the way that he knew the Lord would have us to go. But my dad was not perfect. And he received some tendencies to certain kinds of sins from my grandfather Woods that he, by virtue of genetics actually, I got some of those predispositions too. I know what they are. And probably you know something about me, but there's some things you don't know about me. And I'm keeping those between me and the Lord, okay? We talk about those regularly. But what happens is that the predisposition to certain kinds of sins are indeed passed on from parent to child. But here's the good news for us who know Jesus. When Christ came into my life, He gave me the capacity to become conscious of sin. The Holy Spirit makes me conscious of my sin and my sinful tendencies. And consequently, I can trust the Lord for those. I know my weaknesses, not all of them, but I know most of them. I'm familiar with them because the Spirit of God regularly reminds me when I do those sins, He convicts me of the sin. When I read the Word of God, I see those possibilities and actualities in my own life. So that's what is meant, I believe, those two things that are conveyed by the idea of sins being passed on to the third and fourth generation. So, the question is, are all illnesses the result of sin? In the broader sense, the answer is yes. However, in a way, no. Jesus says as much in verse 3. Let's look at what Jesus said in answer to the question. He said, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus knew that the man who was born blind was a sinner. 
He was not laboring under some sort of delusion about this man. He knew that he was a sinner. He also knew that his parents were sinners. But what he knew was, he knew that this illness that this man had, this blindness from birth, was not the result of any sin in either the man's life nor his parents' life. But it was for the display of the works of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is what St. Augustine said in this regard. He said, some bad things apparently help not from bad causes in the past, but for good purposes in the future. Do you get his drift? This man was born blind because God had something in mind that he was going to do to display his glory. It's amazing how our God takes things in our lives which we would consider detrimental. And they are to a degree detrimental. And he has a plan to use those flaws physically in our lives in order to display his power, his grace, and his glory. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth. Brothers, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, so that no one may boast before God. Our God specializes in using those things which are, as Paul described himself, the off-scourings of the world. People that nobody else would give any credence to because of their difficulties, their restrictions, some sort of handicaps that they have. But God delights in using those people. In a very revealing statement which God made from the burning bush to Moses when Moses was debating God as to whether God was confused about who Moses was. He said, who made your mouth? Who makes a person deaf or dumb? Who makes a person seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In His sovereignty, God uses these things that are awfully difficult troubles in order to accomplish His purpose of bringing honor to Himself. I'm going to speak about a third musician like the other two whom I mentioned, Stevie Wonder, Jose Feliciano. His name is Ken Miedema. I had the enjoyment of sitting in a church building in California in 2005 on vacation and listen to this man, brilliant. I'd heard of him many times before. And this man was not born blind, but he was born with the inability to see anything except dim, shadowy outlines of figures. That's all he could see. Only thing he could see. Well, this man came to know Jesus. And what he would do in this particular moment, he's still doing his craft. He's in his 70s now, still doing his craft. This is what he would do in that evening event in that local church. He would play three notes on the piano, and they were not notes which were right next to each other. Three notes. And then he would give anyone in the congregation the opportunity to give a three-word phrase. And then on the spot, this was unbelievable. If I didn't know better, I would think he had had conversation with all the people. It was not just one person. There were several people. I can't remember. I should have taken... Note of exactly how many people. And then he would compose a song on the spot. And it was coherent. It was beautiful. And he did that and did that and did that. He was blind in order to display the works of God. There was no rancor in his spirit. He was not bitter because he has this blindness in his lifetime, he has produced 26 albums. Amazing. 
Perhaps you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. At the age of 17, in Chesapeake Bay, she took a dive, and when she dived into the water, her head hit a stone, and she broke her neck. She was rescued by a friend, and for over a year, she suffered horribly, and since then, she's still living. Since then, she has continued to suffer. There's not a moment in her life that she doesn't have some sort of pain. She's 68 years old. will be 69 just a little later this year. And she was angry at God. She was a quadriplegic. And she said, if I could have raised a finger to pull the trigger on a gun, I would have killed myself. She was so despondent because of what had happened. She was a beautiful girl, very athletic. She rode horses, played tennis. She was an excellent swimmer. And she had, as it were, the world by the tail. And all this happened to her. And then as time unfolded, she came into a deeper relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And she began to see why God had done these things. And through the influence of a therapist who was seeking to give her restored hope, I don't know if that therapist was a believer or not, but certainly was used by the Lord in her life. And this therapist suggested, why don't you learn to paint with a paintbrush in your mouth? She began to paint. As far as I know, she had never tried anything artistically before. But I have seen some of her works quite amazing. Do you know this woman, Johnny Erickson Tata? has written 48 books. How many books have you written? 48 books. Handicapped. Big time handicapped. She has recorded many albums. She has been awarded twice the award that is given by the National Religious Broadcasters Association as having the best radio program. One is called Johnny and Friends. It airs a thousand times every day in the United States of America. And another one, Diamonds to Dust, she won the same award later for that. It airs that many times at least. It's a one-minute segment all over the nation, day in and day out. This woman who had this awful accident, it was allowed by God in order to display... His works. And she is being used. Ken Meadham is being used. And there's so many more people, lesser lights as it were, whom God is using because they trust the Lord. These works, by the way, are works of faith. In John 6.27, perhaps you remember, we saw how a group of people came to Him and inquired of Jesus. They said, Jesus, what must we do to do the works of Of God. And Jesus simply said, Believe in the one who sent me. In other words, these works are always works of faith. And these kinds of works verify that you and I, if we are believers, are indeed believers. Because the fruit is that which is born by the power of the Spirit and glorifies God. Jesus says in John 15 8, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In John chapter 12, in relationship to that last statement, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was talking about himself. But also, he's talking about us. We, in order to bear fruit, which glorifies the Lord and verifies our own legitimacy as disciples of Christ, we must die to ourselves. We must put Christ first and above all in our lives. This work is not only a work of faith. These works, I should say, are not only works of faith and they're works which authenticate or verify, but they're works which honor the Lord. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you think that Johnny Erickson Tata or Ken Miedema had any idea 
when they decided to forget about themselves and they didn't settle for self-pity, but they trusted the Lord in the face of hardship unlike anyone in this room has faced, do you think they had any conception about how they would be used? They really probably didn't. But they did what Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So these are works which honor God. That's why we're here. Isaiah 43.7 says that we are here to bring glory. God created us the first time and He recreated us the second time in Jesus Christ to bring glory and honor to Himself. We need to keep that firmly fixed in our minds. And then one more thing, if you're able to turn to John 14 about these works, these works which Jesus speaks about in John 9.3, in order that the works of God might be displayed in this blind man. But the same is true in us. He wants to display His good works in us. And the other thing that I would mention here, 14.12 of John, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in Me, that's the matter of faith, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. The Father received Jesus as Jesus ascended into heaven. And in answer to the prayer which Jesus made on behalf of us who know Him, the Father sent the Holy Spirit so that we can do greater works, not greater in terms of the essence of the works, but greater in terms of the impact because there are more of us. Can you imagine what's happened as a result of Jesus dying to Himself willing to go to the cross and suffer the shame and the pain of the cross, then being raised from there. Can you imagine, in this room, probably close to 200 people. Last night, probably 150. In the late service, there will be probably 400 people here. Can you imagine what He's done just here by dying? He's produced much fruit, hasn't He? And it is something that He continues to do through us. Well, This text of Scripture in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, talks about the condition of mankind. We're blind spiritually, dead on arrival. We can't see. But the mission of Jesus is awesome in terms of its impact upon us. So let's read, beginning with verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Let's stop there just a moment. So what is the mission of Jesus? Well, the mission of Jesus was actually predicted in more than one place. I'm only going to read two verses from Isaiah 42 that have relationship to the Messiah. We know Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what the Word of God says. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. This is God the Father speaking regarding the Messiah. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, the Bible says, those who walk in darkness, and he's speaking of the Gentiles in Galilee, those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus the Messiah is the great light for the Gentiles. Thank God that we have been blessed in this way by the Lord. Then look at verse 7. To open, this is why the Lord sent the Messiah. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds like John 9, 1 through 7. And it's true because in Luke 4:18, the first public teaching that Jesus gave in his home church, as it were, the synagogue in Nazareth, he took the scroll. The reading from the day is from the book of Isaiah also. And one of the lines says that he had come to restore or give recovery of sight to the blind. This is our Lord 
Jesus Christ who has done this. So Jesus' mission is to shine. He says as much in verse 5, While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And by the way, the word translated when, probably the most precise way to translate the word from the original language is whenever. While, rather, I I should have said while in verse 5. While, it's whenever I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Hold that thought. We'll get to it in just a moment. So, Jesus lights up the world. He gives light, and Jesus also gives sight. Remember, this man had never seen before. We have no idea. He had dwelled in darkness all of his life. He had never seen. He had heard things. He had heard people speak. He undoubtedly wondered, I wonder what they look like. But he had never seen. This is also a picture of us before we come to know Christ. And the Bible says in the last part of verse 4, night is coming when no man can work. What is Jesus speaking of? He's talking about probably his upcoming death. The light will be snuffed out for a period of time, a very brief period of time. But the light went out when Jesus died, but it didn't stay out. Praise the Lord for that. And he also is probably talking about our lives too. Night is coming when no one can work the works of God. You and I have an expiration date. We're going to expire. I don't know when it is, but I know it's sooner than it was yesterday for me. It's coming. I don't live in dread of it. Just like we saw last week, what Jesus said that is so encouraging in the 8th chapter. You want to look again at 8 verse 52, where the Jews said to Jesus, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. That's true. We're not going to taste death in the sense of the awfulness of death. Because when we live this life, Praise the Lord. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. It'll be a seamless transition from this life to that life. It's going to be an upgrade for anybody, to say the least. We need to be ready. So, when Jesus says that night is coming, it's in the context of His dealing with this individual man. Now, I was caused to think back over the whole book of John to this point. And what became apparent to me is that Jesus loves the individual. And in chapter 3, for instance, a man by the name of Nicodemus, whom Jesus describes as the teacher of Israel, not just some nominal guy. He was the teacher. Jesus never used any word lightly. He knew he was the leading teacher, Nicodemus was, in Israel, came to him. And he dealt with him patiently. And he told him the truth that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In the fourth chapter, Jesus finds himself thirsty and tired midday at a well in Samaria. And this woman comes up at a time that women don't come, or anyone else for that matter. It's midday, perhaps in the heat of the summer. And this woman shows up and Jesus enters into conversation with her. And they're having conversation. And He tells things to her that nobody else would have known. And she's astonished. And she comes to faith in Christ. She becomes an evangelist immediately. Later in the fourth chapter... You may remember there's a nobleman who comes to Jesus and his son is dying. And he said, Sir, would you please heal my son? Jesus said, Yeah, I'll go with you. And the man says, No, sir, you do not need to go with me. All you have to do is say the word. Jesus said, Go your way. Your son lives. And so the man goes his way. And as he nears his home, he sees an entourage of servants from his house coming to him. And he probably has some concern initially about what their news is. But when they get there, they say, Sir, your son lives. And the man asked that group of people, When was my son made well? 
And he said, he heard them say, it was the seventh hour. And he began to think back and he thought, said, that's exactly when Jesus said to me, go your way, your son lives. Jesus is interested in individuals. Are you aware of that? Of all the people that Jesus could have interacted with that day in the temple area that we're looking at today, He picked one man out and He spent time with him. He cared for him. Jesus has an eye for the hurting. And all of us are hurting, whether we're willing to admit it. We are all hurting. And if we're not now, we're going to be. And Jesus Christ makes a beeline for people who need Him. He lets His light shine upon such people. This is a great gospel, isn't it? The importance of the individual is clear in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see in verses 6 and 7, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. Now, to us, that seems unsanitary. Poor hygiene. It was not out of the ordinary in this day. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And by the way, this word Siloam, as we're told in the text, is translated sent. If you were due to do a careful study of the times to this point in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is either described by John the Gospel writer, or out of his own mouth, he describes himself as the one whom God sent. Do you know how many times that idea surfaces thus far in the Gospel of John? Twenty times. The word Siloam means sent. And so the whole idea here, we're going to see this next week, how this man immediately after his eyes were made well. Immediately he's on mission. And the reason is because Christ came into his life. And when Jesus comes into our lives, He does not come into our lives for our comfort, although there's a great deal of comfort which accompanies His entrance into anyone's life. But that's not the main reason. He comes into our lives so that we can let our light shine. So the light went out when Christ died on the cross. But it came on again, and it came most brightly at Pentecost, some 50 days after Passover, when Jesus' prayer was answered by the Father, and the Father sent the Holy Spirit, and the church was formed. Do you know the church of Jesus Christ, us, we, we are the light of the world? Jesus says, you, talking to us as disciples of Christ, you are the light of the world. This makes perfectly good sense when we think of what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20. He says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus Christ is here because many of us came with the expectation that He would be here. Begin to think differently if you're not thinking this way up to this point. Begin to think, I'm coming to worship the Lord, but I'm coming so that Jesus will be here in a stronger way. So we come together, and it doesn't have to be in a place like this. It can be anywhere. Wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ, there He is in person and in power. And He wants to use us to shine His light on a world that is steeped in darkness and blindness. Isn't it sad when we see the things we see today in the world, hear the things we hear today, and people are just raving about stuff, and they, they just don't have any sense at all from our perspective. And we know were it not for the grace of God, we'd be in the same boat. In fact, we were in the same boat before we met Christ. And they just need to have the light to shine on them. And by God's grace... He has chosen you and me to be the light. As a church, as individuals, one of the hazards of being an American is that we are still suffering the hangover of rugged individualism, especially those of us who live a little bit further west. Rugged individualism. 
Why, yeah, we're supposed to be responsible. We're supposed to be independent to a degree, but that flies in the face and sabotages, in many cases, what God wants for us and from us as the church. Quit thinking about yourself. That's what the Lord tells me frequently. I don't hear it aloud, but I get the message. It's in Scripture. Forget about yourself. Don't look only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Prefer others above yourself. That's what the Bible says, and that's the way we're to live. And in the process, what will happen is people's lives will be touched and changed. One of the great emphases of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther highlighted what has been called the doctrine of vocation. And among other things that happen in the Reformation, it's often overlooked, is that everyone who knows Jesus is in the ministry. You know that? Everyone who knows Jesus is a priest. That's what the Bible says. Do you believe the Bible? I hope so then you're in the ministry. When you go out into your workplace, you go into your home, you go into your community, you are on mission. Just as surely as a missionary in the formal sense is, or a preacher, or whatever, you are on mission. You see the genius of God in that? How when we leave here, 200 people potentially can go out here with the mentality, we're on mission. In our homes, we're on mission. In our community, at our workplace, we're on mission. In our recreational activities, we're on mission. Always looking for an opportunity to shed some light. Not to tell people what ignoramuses they are. Not that. But to tell people the truth. But before telling the truth, remember what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. We're to be witnesses before we open our mouths with the witness. Now, we can hide behind that, be witnesses, and never tell people about Christ. That's cowardice. But we need to understand that when we walk out of this room or anywhere we go, Christ is in us, and we are the light of the world. We're to let our light shine. By God's grace, He will use it to minister to people. There's a certain urgency that is to characterize us. Why? Because we must work the works of Him who sent Jesus while it is day. Night is coming when no person can work. A final illustration from my favorite blind person in history, Helen Keller. You perhaps know the story of Helen Keller. At the age of 19 months, she developed meningitis, most people think, and she became blind and deaf. And due to her deafness, probably also her blindness, she was a a so-called dumb person. She was mute. She could signal things. She had like 60 signs that she learned before she lost her sight hearing. 60 signs, but that was about it. And she was really like a wild animal. If you've seen the movie The Miracle Worker or read the play, you know the story. And then her parents, they just looked for every opportunity and they were good parents to her. They were heartbroken at the condition of their child. And they found out about an institution in the Northeast where there had been great strides made with sightless people. And they communicated with this institution, and a young lady whose vision was greatly impaired. She was not blind, but she had to wear very thick glasses. And they enlisted her. This family was well-to-do. They lived in northern Alabama. And this lady, Ann Sullivan, came down. And when she came, she came with a doll, which she had purchased with the thought that when she was first introduced to Helen, she would use the doll to begin to help her with entering into the real world. And if you've seen the story, she hands her the doll, then she takes the doll gently out of her hand, then she spells every letter, D-O-L-L, into this child's hand. There is a scene in the movie and in the play 
upon which the movie is based, where she took a mug and she put the mug in the hand of the child. And then she spelled M-U-G. And then in a fury, Helen dashed it and destroyed it into a hundred pieces. But the real moment of truth came for Helen. Some days later, at the age of seven she was, when Ann Sullivan took her to the outdoor source of water, the pump, and the water came into her hand. And then Ann Sullivan wrote W-A-T-E-R, and the light went on for her. And from that moment, she was just fit to be tied. She was begging for Ann to write word after word after word after word into her hand. And Ann Sullivan obliged for 49 years. Ann Sullivan gave her life to help this blind woman become someone who understood life. And in her autobiography, Helen Keller wrote of how when she was introduced to God by Ann Sullivan, she said, I knew there was a God. I just didn't know His name. In my darkness, I was a prisoner but I came to know Him. And she came to know Him through Jesus Christ, by the way. Ann Sullivan was simply known. And when you read the autobiography of Helen Keller, what you see are several references to teacher, 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 teacher. Never to Ann, but always to teacher. And that is an illustration of who we are to be. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. And He indwells us. And He will teach us all things and bring to remembrance everything that He said to His initial group of followers that we have record of in the Scripture. And He'll teach us those things. And we can be teaching. Have you ever spent 49 years with someone to help him or her come to know Jesus? Would it be worth it? To bring some light and someone be resurrected from the dead and have spiritual sight given? Of course it would. And that's our privilege. All of us, we're in too big of a hurry. People scurry around. I'm talking about Christian people scurry from even religious stuff. Scurry from this meeting to this meeting to this meeting. And a lot of that's an avoidance mechanism, I think. We, we don't... We can't get real with people. We can't take the time. And we don't see the value in people. The individual. Remember, Jesus is focused on the individual. And so you and I, if we're going to be like Christ, will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus. For the terrific example He sets for us. But not only that, but for His coming to dwell in us by the Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that You'd work in each of our lives. We trust You, Holy Spirit, to do Your work of empowering us to let our light shine as individuals, but as a church, as the people of God. We pray that for the church all over this city, all over this country, all over this region, all over the world that You would light it up, Lord, through Your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.